everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. I'm joined today in studio by the powerhouse behind the Bradley Lectures podcast, Carlin Bowman, a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, who originally put me in charge of this podcast and gave, gives me the freedom to talk about whatever I like and bring on esteemed guests like herself uh, and more than just the, being the uh, the force behind this podcast. Carlin is an esteemed expert in polling and public opinion and American politics uh, more generally. And she's rolling her eyes uh, at me right now for saying so. Um, Carlin has her, her finger on the pulse of the nation at all times. So a, a great person to come in studio and talk about Sean Trendy's 2012 lecture, The Lost Majorities, 2008 2010 and America's political future. So we're going to talk about political pasts, political presence, and uh, as they say, even though predictions are hard, especially about the future, uh, which is a Danish proverb as I I read (laughs) this week. It's not Yogi Berra. It's a Danish proverb. Uh, We're going to talk about the future just a little bit. So Carlin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that generous introduction. I consider myself a dilettante of data. I'm as likely to be looking at public opinion on the Kavanaugh hearings as I am to be looking at elections. Well, I think that all of the uh, words of praise are well-deserved uh, on this and other topics, but let's uh, let's talk about Sean Trendy for a second, another data dilettante, uh, if you will, uh, except he uh, likes to focus a little bit more on elections and he, he's the senior elections analyst at Real Clear Policy. That's right. I got that. Yes, right. you, you got that right. Real, Real Clear Politics. And of course, his last name, T-R-E-N-D-E, is something that he talks about at the beginning of this lecture because he follows trends. And so he often he often talks about that overall. But he came to AI. And this is another interesting story about so many successful so many young people who've gone on just to great successes, and Sean was one of those people. He came to work for Alan Meltzer, one of the great economists at AI, who passed away just a few years ago. And Alan Meltzer was writing what is the definitive history of the Federal Reserve, another topic that's very much in the news these days about its political independence, about other things. And Sean spent hours and hours and hours in the library doing research for that book. But he was particularly interested in political trends, in part because Alan Meltzer introduced him to, or introduced him to the work of Keith Poole, who is very highly regarded in the political science literature in terms of his work on ideology overall. But Sean befriended those of us in political corner, Norm Ornstein and me, and talked about his interest in doing more work. Um, He seemed in many ways like a young Michael Barone who wrote The Almanac of American Politics. That's the kind of detail, very high praise. That's the kind of detail that both brought to their wanderings in political science data over time. And I was very sad when Sean left, but he did exactly the right thing. He went to Duke uh, to get a law degree and also a master's in political science. And both of which I think he thinks were valuable in in his career over now. And now he has just recently finished his Ph.D. in political science. And I think I believe he's teaching intro political science right now. So all along, he's had a passion for American politics, for looking at particular trends. And the lecture he gave was about a book he had just written, his second book, And um, we wanted him to explore not only the subject of the book, but some broader issues in American political science. And that was the purpose of the lecture. 
so Dr. Sean Trendy. Uh, Dr. Trendy. Now. Yes. Was just uh, Mr. Trendy then. He or, was indeed. Uh, yes. The the robot, as he, he uh, yeah. describes himself. Uh, he's giving this lecture in January of 2012. That's, what, 10 months before the 2012 presidential election. Can you give us a little bit of context for those of us who are listening now, seven years later? Uh, what was the context? What had we just seen? What patterns were emerging in American electoral politics? And uh, what followed? Well, we'd just been through the 2010 elections. And of course, the Democrats lost a huge number of seats that year in the House. And that was very similar to 1994 after Bill Clinton had lost a lot of seats in the House of Representatives. Interestingly, thinking back to both of those elections, health care played a pretty decisive role in both of them. So we were beginning to look forward to the 2012 election and what Obama's prospects were for re-election and to the coalitions he had assembled starting in 2008 in a very smart campaign, and whether or not he was going to be able to to, uh, continue to get the same amount of support from various groups in the population and whether or not he was going to be able to expand his coalition. And that's what Sean was talking about. And Sean wanted to look back historically to long-term trends, and he made a couple of very important points. And the first, I think, is that demographic change occurs. It's important. You've got to be aware of it, but it occurs slowly, and events, candidates are very important. So those were the kinds of things that he wove into this lecture in terms of talking about what might happen in 2012. So we'll get into the role of demography in trying to predict and divine the future of elections. Uh, We'll get back into that in just a few minutes. But for now, we're going to send our audience off to the lecture. This is Sean Trendy in 2012, The Lost Majorities. Since the Civil War, the president's party's lost seat in midterm elections. Now, political scientists have labeled this the rule, the rule of midterm loss, broken only in the highly unusual year of 1934. Now laid over this concept of midterm loss is is another idea, and this is the concept of the sixth year itch, or as I like to call it, the sixth year myth. It's a simple enough concept. Every sixth year of a president's term tends to be an especially bad midterm election. 1938, the sixth year of the Roosevelt presidency, 81 seats the Republicans gained. 1946, the sixth year of the second six years of the of eight, eight years of the Roosevelt presidency, the Republicans gained 55 seats. 1958, the sixth year of Eisenhower, 49 Democratic seats. 1966, 47 Republican seats. 1974, 49 Democratic seats. A pretty good trend. The problem, and this is a problem that's endemic to political science, is that this overlooks the simple fact that most of these election losses resulted not because they occurred in the sixth year as such, but because they occurred in years where parties suffered from particular contingencies. In 1938, we were emerging from a horrific recession, and the Roosevelt administration had overreached with its court-packing scheme in the Third New Deal. In 1946, we were struggling to deal with the post-war economy and the removal of wage and price controls. In 1958, we were again emerging from a bad recession. 1966, the Vietnam War was moving to increase salience, and the uh, Democrats had overreached with the Great Society. And in 1974, of course, we had the debacle of the Watergate year, also a very bad recession. In other words, these parties just ran into some horrible luck in sixth year of presidential elections. Well, in 1998, none of that was true. There was a scandal, obviously, but Bill Clinton's uh, popularity wasn't suffering from it. 
the economy was going gangbusters, and he had actually reined in his agenda from what was a very aggressive agenda in the first two years. And so I thought to myself, well, if none of the contingencies that had driven midterm loss in the past were present in 1998, then the experience we had in these earlier six-year elections would not be present in 1998. And this experience helped to solidify my thinking about political prognostication in general and emphasize the difficulty of doing projections based on present events. It brings to mind the famous repost of British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan when he was asked by a journalist what could possibly derail his government. He simply replied, events, dear boy, events. (laughs) What Macmillan had picked up on is something that's largely eluded our political class with its incessant focus on realignments in emerging majorities of both the Republican and Democratic persuasions. Political science teaches, and this is in the first month of most political science election classes, that election moves in thir- elections move in 32-year epicycles. As fleshed out by the great, and I'm not being facetious, he is great, Walter Dean Burnham, we have years 18, like 1800, 1828, 1860, 1896, 1932, and then things start to kind of fall apart. Uh, But on this kind of 28 to 36 year cycle where it seems like a different political party becomes the majority party in this country. And I think this concept of permanent alignments and realignments has driven a lot of the conversation and the discussion of the 2008 and 2010 elections erroneously. I'll get to that in a second, but I just have one quick thing to say about this generalized concept of it. It's my view at the end of the day that our politics are much more dependent on short-term events, these contingencies, than they are on any long-lasting coalition or realignment. While parties may seem to put together long-lasting majorities by a time winning three, four, or even five elections in a row, that's really not that unusual. The odds of tossing either five heads or five tails in a row is one in 16. With 55 presidential elections under our belt, by simple chance we shouldn't be surprised to see more than a few lengthy runs for parties under our belt. And indeed, we do have a few examples, not many, but a few of parties winning four or five elections in a row. So this idea that elections are largely due to short-term events is what underlies a lot of the lecture today. Now, in my book, I take things back to the 1920s to show how political alignments have come and gone much more quickly than people appreciate and what a great role chance plays in elections. I could talk for three or four hours about this, but we don't have three or four hours. I love this stuff. Um, But today, I'm going to focus on what I think is the most salient and what people really want to hear about, the 2008-2010 elections and what this means for 2012. I will say my discussion of 2012 when I'm speaking will be in the big picture. What exactly happened in 2008? How did things fall apart so quickly for the Obama administration? And what does this mean for the future? Now, to understand where we were in the 2008 election, we have to take a trip in the way back machine. You may recall, pundits spoke of an historic victory and one that would transform the nation's politics. We can start with one Barack Obama II, who spoke of transforming the nation's politics, bending the arc of history, and wiping out the politics of the past 30 years. Now, I have no evidence for this, but I don't think the 30-year reference is an accident. My view is that Obama and his presidents were keenly aware of this idea of 30-year cycles. He is, after all, an extremely educated man. Believed that Reagan had realigned the country in 1980, as many suggest, and that we were due. This is actually, after all, the central thesis of a famous book that was one of the two or three biblical books of the net roots in the early early 2000s, The Emerging Democratic Majority by John Judas and Roy Tashara. 
That book drew directly on realignment theory and suggested that at some point in the 2000s we would see a flip from Republican dominance to Democratic dominance. And I think Obama and his advisors really believed they had captured this. Having won in 2008, 28 years after President Reagan, he was destined to effectuate major changes in our politics. And this is what helped drive that majority to its doom. As an aside, I should note, though, that is any number of lost majorities, some that have come and gone on our political scene. Some have been successful, lasted three or four cycles. Some, like Carter's win in 1976, Kennedy's win in 1960, Coolidge's win in 1924, have only lasted one cycle before they were replaced by something else. In Coolidge's instance, it was replaced by another successful Republican majority that only lasted one cycle. It wasn't just Obama. The New Republic's John Judas celebrated the vindication of his emerging Democratic majority thesis. We can go on and on. Harold Meyerson exhorted the president-elect to bring on the new New Deal, while Paul Krugman said it all with the title of his post-election column, Franklin Delano Obama. Obama overspent, Americans turned against his health care bill, and the Tea Partiers brought about a resurgent American right that helped derail uh, his congressional majority. All this played a role, to be sure. But this begs a more fundamental question. If Obama had really assembled an FDR-like coalition, he should have been able to overcome these forces. After all, you'll recall, or maybe you won't, in FDR's presidency, the Democratic nominees from 1920, 1924, and 1928 had all joined together to oppose his presidency by the 1934 midterms. There was a huge backlash among in the Democratic Party elites and a lot of Republicans, and it did no good because the coalition he'd assembled in 1932 was a strong one, and his method of governing in 1932 from 1936 pleased the majority of the country. Obama didn't have a majority like this. Barack Obama's win in 2008, contrary to the conventional wisdom, was nothing more than a narrower but deeper version of Bill Clinton's coalition from the mid-1990s. What Bill Clinton had done was to take what had become a rump Democratic base of minorities, liberals, and union members and embrace what Judas and Tashara referred to as progressive centrism. He used this this new Democratic ideology, if you will, to graft suburbanites onto the Democratic majority and shore up Democratic strength among Jacksonians in the heartland of the country. These latter voters, who are some of my favorite people in America to study, uh, were white Southerners, largely of Scotch-Irish descent, who had largely stuck with the Democratic Party through the 1960s and 1970s. They didn't vote for Richard Nixon in 1968, and they didn't vote for George Wallace in 1968. They voted for Hubert Humphrey. Most of the successors to the Democratic Party, to Humphrey, did relatively well among these Jacksonian voters, at least for Southerners. Uh, if you look at a map of the ca- county-by-county map in areas in eastern Kentucky, uh, east-central Tennessee, West Virginia, even across uh, Arkansas and into northern Texas, these were areas of unusually strong Democratic strength among whites in the South, even after uh, the Democratic Party had flipped to become the party of civil rights in the 1960s. Now, Obama changed this coalition, but not necessarily for the better. Take a look at the maps. Now, what I've done here is taken basically every uh, state that was basically tied in 1996 or 2008 is white. 
And as it becomes, as, as, a, as a Republican gets a point, it becomes a little bit redder. In other words, like Georgia in 2008, which was barely won by McCain, uh, is light red. And as McCain does a little bit better, it gets darker and darker. And the same is true as the Democrats. You'll notice that the blue states in 2008 look a lot like the blue states in 1996. Why is this? Because from 1996 to 2008, only three states moved more than five points towards the Democrats. Vermont, Nevada, and Barack Obama's home state of Hawaii. Where's the change? The change is right in the middle of the map. The states that I was talking about with the Jacksonians. West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and then the changes in Alabama and Louisiana actually come mostly in the northern tier of the states with the most Jacksonian. These are the states that all moved more than five points away from the Democrats from 1996 to 2008. So Obama didn't build the Democratic coalition in 2008. He narrowed it. Counties that Bill Clinton had carried by as much as 45 points in eastern Kentucky went Republican in 2008, some for the first time since the New Deal. What Barack, what Barack Obama produced in 2008 was a narrower, deeper version of Clinton's 96 coalition. And what I mean by a deeper version of Clinton's 96 coalition is among the areas, the, the groups that Bill Clinton had brought into the Democratic Party, the suburbanites, in other words, Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, that area of the country became bluer. Um, Barack Obama engendered a huge turnout, as we all know, among minority voters. But that, did, that wasn't an expansion of the Democratic coalition. That was just doing better in areas that had also voted for Bill Clinton. <laughs> to get a better idea of this, this is the west, south, central, and east, south, central regions of the United States, counties carried by Democrats in 1996, 2004, and 2008. You see what I'm talking about. Eastern Kentucky in 1996, very Democratic. You have this belt in central, central Tennessee, northern Alabama, Going across into Arkansas, obviously Bill Clinton did well in Arkansas, but then even into the little Dixie region of eastern Oklahoma and across north Texas, the Democrats managed to continue to win in 1996. The map becomes a whole lot redder by 2004, and then it becomes even redder in 2008. Almost every county in Kentucky and Tennessee goes Republican in 2008. And what makes this all the more remarkable is that in 2008, Barack Obama is running five points ahead of where John Kerry ran in, in 2004. The country was shifting bluer as a whole as these areas of the country were continuing to abandon the Democratic Party. Back in studio with the esteemed Carlin Bowman, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And you just heard from Sean Trendy sort of lay out his sketch of where he thinks uh, most American political prognostications tend to miss the point a little bit or tend to look at the big picture as opposed to uh, short-term contingencies, which he sees as having much more of an effect on the outcome of an election. What does he mean by short-term contingencies? And does this mean we're not going to know what's going to happen in 2020 until October? Well, I'm not sure we're going to know for a while what's going to happen in 2020, and I'm not sure that I have a lot of confidence in the polls that we have today. But what I think Sean suggested was that events matter enormously. Um, when Harold McMillan, and I think he referred to this in the lecture, was asked about his prospects in Britain, he said, what could derail the situation? He said, events, my dear, events. And of course, what he what he meant by that was that they can change the trajectory of an election 
in myriad ways in each election cycle, and who knows what will happen between now and, and the 2020, in the November 2020 election overall. But what Sean wanted to point out was that demographic change occurs slowly, um, and that just because it's occurring doesn't mean it's going to last forever. He talks about a book by two uh, well-regarded sociologists and political scientists, Rui Teixeira and John Judas. They wrote a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. I believe they wrote that before the 2000 election when George Bush won that election. It wasn't exactly emerging at that point. They're still making the argument that it is emerging today. Um, but we've heard about a lot of groups that, that we believe are going to be determine the outcome of the election. And the 2020 popular group is the white working class. And in fact, the white working class has in some places been moving in a Republican direction. That's something that's very important to, to look at. And Sean was talking about the movement of a lot of groups over time. And he looked at, um, um, in particular, he looked at, for example, the Hispanic vote. That was a big chunk of the lecture. Um, Hispanics are a growing share of the population, as we all know. Minorities could be a third of the eligible electorate in 2020. And he was just trying to argue that even though groups are emerging, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will continue to vote as they have in past elections. So, So I think he was saying that events matter, candidates matter, and demographic change occurs slowly. So we've heard the phrase, uh, demography is not destiny, and I, I think you've basically sketched out what we mean by that. I think many people hear that and they think, well, just because you're not born, just because you are or are not born into a particular ethnic or social group doesn't mean that you are destined to behave in a particular way, and I think that's right. Uh, is there a way that this applies to the way we analyze and try and predict elections that that is kind of nuanced? Well, demography isn't destiny, but it's very important that you pay attention to changing currents in the electorate. For example, if you go back to the 20... let me see, 2008 election overall. I think the Republican strategists, very smart people, and anybody could have made this mistake, assumed that the electorate was, for example, going to be 72% white. It was 70% white. That was the story of the election. That's what changed. Um, and you, but you've got to be you've got to be sensitive to these demographic changes. But it's very hard to predict what the actual electorate would look like will look like. I mean, we know, for example, that excitement about 2020 is higher now than it usually is in October of an election year. Does that benefit the Republicans? Does it benefit the, the Democrats? Those are the kinds of things that demographers need to look at, in addition to these slower moving demographic currents. One of the things that stuck out to me was. Trenti's discussion of Jacksonians in uh, Appalachia. And I know you said you didn't want to discuss this at any kind of uh, great length. It's a, a topic for, for Michael Barone. So I'm yes. not going to put you on the spot. Good. But I did find it very interesting, at the risk of sounding a little bit Whiggish, I did find it very interesting that we were talking about a, a right turn, so to speak, or a, a flip from blue to red in white working class areas already in 2012. Absolutely. I I won't make you say any more about that instead. I mean, Sean was very perceptive, I think, Mm -hmm. in in focusing on that. I mean, a number of people knew it was happening, but it didn't seem like the most important current. The most important current seemed to be the growth of the minority share of the electorate. And that's one of the things that people like Teixeira and Judas focused on in the emerging Democratic majority. Well, I, I think many people have a tendency to look at 2016 as if it began with Donald Trump coming down an escalator uh, and not seeing the major demographic or electoral trends that actually 
came well before it in, in prior elections. Absolutely. And his team, fairly sophisticated team, was looking very carefully at the industrial Midwest. And apparently, from all of the news accounts, the post-2016 accounts, the Clinton campaign, those people surrounding her just didn't feel it was important to look at those industrial Midwestern states. And that, to me, just seems incredible. The Democratic pollster Stan Greenberg called it malpractice. Yeah, there. I mean, at the risk of uh, making trendy sound a little bit uh, too prophetic, there was a, a mention of whites in Iowa, Minnesota, and ding, 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 Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yes, indeed. Uh, that so, was uh, that was a bit much. I nearly I nearly leapt out of my seat when I, I heard that. I know. Uh, and hopefully, you will too when you hear uh, the rest of Sean Trendy's 2012 lecture, "The Lost Majorities, 2008, 2010, and America's Political Future." So now that we understand the nature of Obama's victory, that it did not represent a sea change in American politics, but rather was due to certain contingencies that came along in a narrow coalition, 2010 becomes easier to explain. You see, a narrow coalition is rife with problems, and I'll use a simple analogy. Let's say you have two groups in your coalition, and you start out with both of them approving of you at 100%. Over the course of your first term, one of the groups continues to love you, but one of the groups falls down to 0%. Well, you're at 50%, which isn't great, but it's better than if you only had that one group in your coalition and you were all the way down to 0%. When you have a narrow coalition, you just don't have as much room for error among groups. And by excluding the Jacksonians from the Democratic coalition, the, the Democrats were in a situation where any losses among working-class whites, among suburbanites, among Latino voters would be would be absolutely disastrous for their uh, presidential coalition. And in congressional elections in particular, a narrow, deep coalition is very, very bad, especially for Democrats who already start out with their vote concentrated in minority-majority districts and liberal vote sinks uh, in urban areas. Once in office, Obama's politics quickly became defined in the minds of the American voters. On February 17, 2009, he signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, better known as the Stimulus, providing for about $800 billion in spending. The public supported it, but the support for it was heavily Democratic, which is something we see again and again in the presidential approval ratings. They hold up reasonably well, but it's concentrated among Democratic voters. Only 28% of Republicans and 56% of independents supported the law. A few days later, the president's approval rating dipped below 60% for the first time as the support among independents trickled downward to 54%. By June, he had fallen to the 50s, and while the economy was taking the toll on him, it wasn't the major issue. Americans approved of his job approval on the economy in June by a 55% to 42% margin, and this is from Gallup. Where they disapproved of him and where the president had been the most aggressive and where he had always promised to be the most aggressive was spending. The government's decision to loan money to General Motors and to Chrysler in exchange for a government share in the companies was highly unpopular. Majorities approved of this move in every region, including the auto-producing Midwest. On controlling federal spending, 45% of Americans approved of the president's performance, while 51%, already a majority, disapproved. At this time, the only other issue where the president was upside down was his handling of the federal budget deficit. 46% approved, 48% disapproved. So even at this early day, at a time where Americans still approved of the job he was doing on the economy, it was spending that was driving his job approval downward. By mid-June, 
The share of the country that self-described as conservative showed a statistically significant uptick to 40%. And for the first time since the 1990s, a plurality of Americans viewed the Democrats as too liberal. And this is critical because what it meant was that Bill Clinton's rebranding of the Democrats as the party of fiscal responsibility, the progressive centrism that Judas and Tashara had based their emerging Democratic majority theory on, had taken a major hit in the eyes of the American public. In New Jersey, which is largely a suburban state, a state that had gone overwhelmingly for George H.W. Bush in 1988, and then quickly switched in uh, 1992 and 1996 as the northern suburbs moved towards the Democrats to becoming a solidly Democratic state. It moved back and elected Chris Christie by four points, by far the most conservative governor to be elected in that state that I can think of, quite frankly. In November 2010, the Clinton coalition absolutely fell apart. Democrats lost 66 House seats while picking up three seats for Republicans. Worst showing for any uh, party in a House election since 1948. Worst showing for any party in midterm elections since 1938. We can see the types and see uh, this chart shows Democratic losses by type in 2010. And again, we see it's these Clinton coalition pieces that I'm talking about where the Democrats suffered the greatest losses. Greater Appalachia, which is the the Jacksonian region, 14 uh, Democrats lost. But the congressional Democrats in 2010 won only 43% of the suburban two-party vote. So we're talking about a coalition that, as of the end of 2010, had kind of been put back right where they started from. Uh, to the point where they're winning in suburbs about the same rate that Michael Dukakis won there, but they don't have the strength that Michael Dukakis had in greater Appalachia. It's not a good place for the Democrats to find themselves post-2010. Among white Catholics, the Democratic vote share dropped from 47 percent in 2008 to 39 percent in 2010. Quite possibly, the Democrats were showing among this group since the 1920s. White voters without college degrees, we can broadly generalize this to be the white working class, swung from a 40% Obama group in 2008 to a 33% Democratic group in 2010. In short, suburbanites and white working class voters peeled away from the Democratic coalition in 2010. I think the key thing to understand about this is that nothing that happened in 2008 or 2010 is written in stone to continue in the future. As I've said, Voters are smart. They know what's going on, and they pay attention to what politicians and parties are saying. They don't automatically attach themselves anymore to the Republican or Democratic Party. They picked up on the Democrats' leftward shift over the course of, not really over the course of 1996 uh, to 2008, and made a similar shift to the Republicans. If the Republicans are to overreach, they'll go right back to the Democrats. But I think there are a few big picture things that I need to cover, um, because a lot of what we've heard in the media, especially after the census being uh, released, is kind of a resurgence of this emerging democratic majority theory, this idea that demographic shifts in this country are driving us inexorably toward democratic dominance uh, and will really make it difficult for the Republicans to win in 2012. Now, as I've tried to emphasize, I am firmly of the opinion that demographics aren't destiny. I don't think you can do straight-line projections, uh, and this is why. There's four parts to the basic emerging, emerging democratic majority as described by Judas and, and Tashara. Minorities, the white working class, women, and people living in idiopolises, which are kind of upper-middle-class trendy suburbs. 
Later on, they've added millennials uh, to the idea, which are these younger voters who they say will maintain their democratic allegiance. Now, a few of these I can take care of pretty quickly. Uh, the white working class and suburbanites I've talked about quite a bit in the context of the Clinton coalition. They've been abandoning the Democrats because the Democrats are no longer seen as the party of fiscal responsibility and social moderation. We can debate amongst ourselves whether that is a fair branding, but it is a fact that they no longer view Democrats that way. I want to spend the last 10 minutes or so, though, talking about the Latino vote, because this is incredibly important to our country's politics. Uh, It's loomed as the basis for a democratic counter-revolution in the South since at least the 1960s. In his famous book, The Emerging Republican Majority, Kevin Phillips noted that Viva Kennedy clubs had provided a new level of political consciousness for Hispanic Americans in Texas, flocking to the polls to support the first Roman Catholic president, much like their northern brethren. Phillips estimated that from 1960 to 1972, Mexican-Americans gave 84% of their vote to Democratic presidential candidates. Now, this is critically important. Why? Because Mexican-Americans don't give anywhere near 84% of their vote to Democratic presidential candidates today. Gradually, over the past few decades, compared to the country as a whole, Latino voters have converged towards the center of American politics. This is contrary to probably everything you've ever read in the news about Latino voters. You also hear that Latino voters are an exploding portion of the electorate. It's just not true. In 2002, Latinos made up about 8% of the electorate. In 2004, 8% of the electorate. 2006, 8% of the electorate. 2008, 9% of the electorate. 2010, 8% of the electorate. Latino voters are growing rapidly as a share of the population, but they just aren't entering the electorate at the rate that you would expect to see from the census numbers. What's happening that goes beyond this is that immigration has topped off in this country. With the onset of the Great Recession or the Modern Depression or whatever you want to call it, Latino immigration just isn't occurring. What's happened is that, and this actually shows up in the census numbers as well, while there's been an explosion in Latino growth, most of it has been children born to Latino people who are already in the country. Now, this is incredibly important to the future of American politics. And why is this? Well, let's take a look over the last decade, first at the Republican share of the African-American vote split by ideology. Liberal African-American voters, moderate African-American voters, and conservative African-American voters cluster to vote heavily Democrat. Non-Hispanic whites, on the other hand, sort neatly by ideology. You can see that that white liberals give 10 to 20 percent of their vote to Republicans, moderates split about 50-50, while conservative whites give about 80 to 90 percent of their vote uh, to Republicans. Latino voters do more or less the same thing that white voters do. Conservative Latinos don't vote quite as uh, heavily Republican as non-Hispanic whites do. Liberals vote, liberal Latinos vote about the same, and moderate Latinos vote slightly more uh, Democratic than their white counterparts do. But Latino voters are diverse in their voting pattern. What makes the Latino vote so heavily Democratic today is there aren't as many conservative Latinos as there are conservative whites. This is going to change dramatically in the next 10 to 20 years. As, more, as Latinos become more assimilated in American society, as Latino children go to college here and graduate school and become doctors and lawyers, just like my, my uh, Italian and Irish ancestors did, they'll eventually join fully the, the ranks of the middle class. And these statistics suggest that as they do that, they will become much, much more Republican. 
And that is why we've seen from the 1960s when Mexican-Americans were voting about 85 percent Democrat to today when Mexican-Americans vote about 60 percent Democrat. You see this large shift because of the increased assimilation into American society. I, I don't see any reason that trend doesn't continue. So in short, as we move towards 2012, don't believe the hype about where, democratic tre- where, where demographic trends are sending us. I would not be surprised to see Latino turnout spike. I would not be surprised, though, to see it stay the same or even drop a little bit. If African-American turnout re- comes back to traditional levels of 11%, that's 2% of Barack Obama's vote that gets knocked off right off the top uh, from his 2008 turnout. And I will say one other thing. The president's uh, approval rating among whites right now is 33%. And that is a huge problem because the minority vote in this country is very disproportionately uh, spread out. You have a large contingency in states that are already heavily blue because liberal whites live there as well, such as New York and California. And then you have states like Mississippi and Louisiana where very conservative whites outnumber it. Where this becomes critical and where the president's weakness, longstanding weakness among the white working class and now among suburban voters is in the tier of northern states which are heavily white, states like Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio, and and Pennsylvania. Uh, If the numbers don't improve there, the Democratic coalition doesn't have a chance in 2012. We're back in studio for one last discussion with AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman. You have some research out on approval and re-election prospects, and I just got to glance at it earlier today. How does this uh, cycle compare to what we've seen in the past? What does the, the data that you're looking at that you've published uh, point to? And, and I will note that we are about half a year earlier in the election cycle than Sean Trendy was in 2012. Well, I hope we can be as prescient as Sean was about our predictions. So we're not in the business of making predictions. We're just trying to analyze the electorate, and that's what we'll be doing in the NAI's political report um, in practically every month until the election. And what we wanted to look at is where Trump was now, and to compare him to Obama in 2012 on a number of different factors. We looked at his approval rating. We looked at the number of people who said they would vote to re-elect him or they would not vote to re-elect him. And then we looked at some of the very early matchup. And what's interesting to me is the approval number, the definite re-elect number, and um, those two, they actually move in tandem throughout and give us a pretty good picture of where Trump is. He's clearly holding his base. That will not be unimportant in the 2020 election. He's doing a little worse than Obama in terms of the number of people who say that they will definitely vote against him. But interestingly, if you look at the number of people who would definitely vote for Donald Trump, it's not significantly different from the percentage of people who gave that response about Obama at this point in the last cycle. So there's some interesting parallels there. Um, we also looked at the we looked at some early matchups that ABC News and the Washington Post had done in their in their most recent poll, looking at Trump versus the other candidates, um, the most prominent candidates overall, and looking at those instances where. Trump, where they would vote for Trump in all cases and they would vote against Trump in all cases, just to get a sense of the intensity of support and opposition to to Trump all over overall. And it looks to me like he's got some problems going forward. Um, we certainly see that in some of the polls suggesting that Biden, at least, seems to beat him in most matchups and some of the other prominent Democrats do, too. Um, but we have a long way to go. 
Carlin Bowman, AEI Senior Fellow, Data Dilettante, and Driving Force Behind the Bradley Lecture Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Telvis Fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures Podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.